0: um yeah sorry about that worries okay i've I've also got a backup mic here as well all right so um tell me about this beer and i you know I, i read the material and i'm fairly familiar with how these kinds of things work ron i've seen many of your uh projects come by but i'm i'm sort of curious in the in in Derek's involvement and why you brought him in and and kind of the backstory before we get to the beer, uh, the Truman stuff. Uh, Derek, you you started brewing at Truman's the year I was born, so <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'd love to hear. No, that about that.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, well, I mean, the project started. I mean, that was kicked off really by the cells, but I, I I got a little bit of involved because I'd mentioned before on uh, one of our previous projects about. Um, the way in which some of the beers were produced and blended within the truman when I first got there. so I was quite young, and that was a long time ago, but I was quite young. <laughs> and, uh, it, um, it, it and it's sort of almost a vague memory because it was um I was, it was still getting used to the brewery, but I remember that we had beer which would arrive from Burton and all, originally all the barley wines were brewed up in Burton. We, we had two breweries within the Truman group. There was one in Burton producing the House and specialist beers and London which produced lots of, sort of running bitter and mild and, and things like that. Um, so, um, and had originally been built for brewing Porter. It would have been one of the original London Porter breweries but towards the end, and when the uh, we were going to build a new brewery in London that was going to take over all the production, they closed Burton. So I saw the barley wine, and we had a barley wine. And it's you know the, the breweries were the Eagle breweries, Black and Grey eagles. So um, uh, the uh, I remember the barley wine, and my memory of it is sort of the last few bottlings that we did of it. We brought the beer down uh the stock beer down from burton in wood hog, hogsheads so wooden cast 54 gallon ones, uh and they were stored in the cellar uh and they, they sort of came down towards the end and then they were checked and then put into a tank The there was checked from various tanks and that's where i came in because i was in the lab at the time mm. and then that was the, the brewer that had come down from burton to oversee it a chap called Bert Downey, so he Sort of gave me a little bit about what we were looking for in terms of the beer, uh, and then we, we brewed a running beer that was blended with this in approximately one third to two thirds uh, to make the barley wine, which was then put into bottles small bottles. Uh, I think it had to move to half pints because I think mm. the nips that originally came in would only be done at first, but. Just to double check my memory, I was very fortunate that one of my, two of my old colleagues from Truman's who had been there before I got there even, and are now still alive and still very, uh, very cooperative. And Mike Spillane, who was one of my colleagues at the time, finished up the production director of Brick Lane, um, and I've been with him for some time. He was he almost equivalent to Mike, he was like their development brewer at the time. Um, And he was up in Burton at the time, working in Burton, and he remembered that and and sort of confirmed, really, what I had a vague memory of. So it was rather nice when we got that letter from Mike. Yeah, from myself. So that match with Ron's research, I think I did include, did I
2: include that in what I sent you, that document I sent you? The final page, I think, has it's from Mike Spillane. It's just his recollections. This is what Derek just mentioned, his recollections of Body wine, like I was very close to Bath. Yeah, number yeah, one. It was almost exactly
1: bath, bath. bath. Yeah, which is where the story started. Really. I think Ron with you wanting to do yeah after visiting my here. Yeah, yeah. That, I think that was the original
2: idea, wasn't it? We we do a Bath number one. Yeah, oh yeah. Don't get me started. You know, Bath Bath is owned by AB and it still exists over there in some fashion, although it's not supported. So I've been trying for years to get the get the various. Um people on our side it was fine, but the Coors Visitor Center uh, in Burton owns the archive or owns the rights to the archive. So they literally, even though Bass is a brand, is owned by A B and they they produce it and then Marston Marston produces the cast beer, yeah. A B produces the bottle beer, uh it they own the rights to the name, but not the rights to the archive. A B when they when they left Burton, they gave the archive to Burton or to whoever was the custodian, and now Molson Coors owns the archive, is my understanding. I've asked many, many times Harry White and yeah, all the people yeah, that are running yeah, it, yeah. and he's like, and they're like, sorry, like they won't, ge- they won't give you access. I even went to the CEO of of uh, Molson Coors in, <laughs> in in Europe, and he just said, he very graciously said, no, we're not going to let you in. So all this to say, like. <laughs> I kind of gave up in my, my pursuit of doing basically this with fast party wine. And we were already on a path of doing, so we did brew Yard uh, with Ron. The first beer that we did with Ron was 2016 Brewer Yard, so stock pale ale. That was an 1877 Truman's Burton stock pale ale. Yeah. And then, and that was just, I think you had given me that recipe and it happened to be Truman's. Yeah. Then the second beer, which you've had and you wrote about Open Eye Poundage, was an 1840 London Truman's London Porter. And that's when we first brought in Derek because I felt like there's so much history here, and he has so much history that, you know, I, I won't say I felt like a fraud as a Chicagoan uh, making this London porter, but I felt like it, we needed somebody with his credentials to bring some some real backbone to the to the porter project because there was so much history there, and that's where I got to know Derek really in in earnest, and through in through conversations he mentioned. Barney wine production, which you just uh, recalled. And I think when this one came about, we felt like, well, at least from my point of view, I felt like this is a great way to celebrate Derek's career, like how it started in a certain way, or at least something that was happening of a, of a different era was this production of stock, uh, Barney wine and Burton, then blended down in London with the fresh beer. And so we, I wanted to pay homage to that really, was the reason why, for me, this was a fun. Yeah. <laughs> now, what was it? Was it a six, 1964 recipe? We had 64, yeah. Yeah. No, I, 60. I got it right here. 60, okay. Yeah. So okay. a little bit a little bit before you yeah. started, but um, yeah. I printed out the yeah. recipes here. But, <laughs> so two recipes, a stock beer um, that is a little higher hopped, uh, the invert number three, mm-hmm. um, went to the wood heads. So we, <laughs> we did that with some neutral oak barrels added Britanamyces classinii, you know, British fungus. One of those things that we feel that is also the common thread of our three beers is not just that they're all Truman's recipes, but they've all at least had some time in wood yeah. with Britanamyces classinii. Yeah. Just that, you know, you know the story.
3: I think they treatment's
2: Truman's
1: recipes.
2: Yeah. Because, because the, 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 cause when we did
3: Obadiah Pangage, I remember I gave you a variety of ones, didn't I? Because I think there were Bartley
2: Perkins ones in there as well. Yeah. We tried hard. To, we were originally we were like we got to do a Barclay Perkins recipe, but that that beer had a lot more brown malt, and it mm-hmm. was we brewed it with a small batch, and it was a little bit acrid and edgy. So the Truman's mm-hmm. recipe just looked the part, mm-hmm. and so for that for overdrive Poundage, it just it looked and it ended up being a better fit mm-hmm. uh, for you know can, porter.
0: Can, you know, can, it, can it I was, ask? Uh, a, let me ask a question while we're talking about stock ale, because I'm curious about how many even existed as late as the 1960s, um, you know, where th- this this tradition of of, of barrel aged stock ales is basically gone now. I mean, I know Green King does their thing and I, I don't know if anyone you know, really does it. So, was it dying Yeah, I mean, you had you had some of the ones, I mean, um, uh,
3: Gold Label, the Tenant's Barley wine, that was aged in hogsheads in the 50s. I don't probably sometime in the 60s, they stopped doing that. Um, I think there were a few a few, uh, hang-ons. I think Cold Spring Ale, that was aged, wasn't it? I'm not.
1: The I'm best not with that one. Uh,
3: well, I mean, yeah, I, but, but I think that disappeared yeah. in the 60s as well. Um,
1: you had a number of breweries who were aging in um, small tanks. Yeah. I sometimes would. So things uh, like uh, the
3: Gales. Yeah, Russian I think that was, yeah. I think when that was brewed up at John Smith's, the last batches. Yeah. Some I distinctly remember someone telling me that they they had it in casks and they just rolled it round the brewery yard every so often and lighten yeah. it up a bit. Yeah.
1: But I think you're right, Jeff. It's virtually gone. And certainly, I came in right at the tail. I mean, I, I can only remember. You know, I've only got a relatively distant past memory of it. But it was a very striking memory, uh, and it was it was really nice when we got Mike. Mike. Uh, Belaine's uh, message back almost confirming a little about what I had remembered. And put in a bit more detail, on it, actually, which was good. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: but uh, I, but it was uh, you know, quite a, a, a forceful memory for me. One of the things that helped me decide to be a pro because I was still in the lab at this time.
2: <laughs> and and uh, so, Burryard was 100% wood aged, no blending. Yeah. Obadiah poundage was the two thirds fresh to one third age in the same here and it from a brewer from a brewer's perspective it's really fascinating we so we're going to do an event tomorrow night at the tap room to release it and i pulled off a, a six barrel keg of each of the two beers before blending so obviously the you know the beer you have is, is the is, the, is the, the final blend but right right before we blended them i, I saved a keg of each. so we're going to taste those tomorrow just for educational purposes but just part of this With all these beers, from my perspective, is just learning and then also now trying to kind of educate people that a lot of these things that are associated with, in modern times, with Belgian breweries were happening in England, you know, whether it's touching wood, Britannomyces, blending of aged and and non aged beer, and all these things, you know, the use of invert sugar syrups, you know, Mm -hmm. that are, are, you know, we used, you know, invert three, invert one. Providing some some richness and some character as well.
0: Yeah, um, I, I'm curious about the the way you you know I think Ron probably helped out with this the the way you came up with a recipe for a modern beer. Were you trying to make it an evocation of uh, of of the Truman's beer, or were you just working with a beer in a in a particular style and trying to make a best the best version of that you could?
2: We're, we're trying to recreate the 1960 barley wine as it was released. So this will be a little bit tough to see, but I found these on eBay, but um, you can see that was, you know, where the label for the bottle came from. So this is, this says, it's hard to read, but this is Truman's original number one Burton barley wine. And so that's, again, what we are paying homage to. So this is, a, I don't know when this coaster's from, but that's essentially what we're trying to, convey. So just like with all these beers, we're trying with again a twentieth century brew house and um, you know, pellet hops instead of whole cone hops and, and all that, but we're trying to evoke what this beer was like back in the nineteen sixties. Right. So as far as, as far
1: as the process, yeah. I mean, in, in terms of the, um, using the, uh, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure that was 100% deliberate by the Burton Brewers. I think that just happened, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. And these beers were stored, I think, for a minimum of nine months, uh, you know, before they were even checked. So, um, it, it's highly likely that something was happening in them being wood gas and things. But, um, so, yeah. It, yeah. It, it, I mean, we, we, we tried to make sure that it, it came up with the right flavour. But they were definitely acidic, because that was one of the analyses that, you know, in my in my youth I was having to perform. And when I went down with uh, the second brewer at the time, Bert Downey, you know, we were tasting it to check it, and then just working out which ones were right, ready to go forward for the blending process. So, I mean, a little bit similar to what they do in Belgium today, as yeah. you say. I mean, and mean, it's a sort of lost up <coughs> from British brewing, I
0: think. So it's been a minute, but uh, by your memory, how uh, similar does the current beer taste to the Trumans that you were making in the '60s? Is it? Can you can you recall clearly enough to, to compare them?
1: I I I wouldn't swear to that one, Jeff. I mean that's a challenge. I mean I'd like to think it's pretty close, and I enjoyed the beer. So and I used to enjoy the Truman barley wine. So it was, um, and in fact at, at Christmas. We used to get a beer allocation from the brewery, delivered to your home actually was quite unusual because we were three floors up at the time. Um, but I I put on a case of the barley wine and you we could get the bedroom in palau, which was one of one of my favourite beers from then in the first place, but but I also got some barley wine, so we had that over the Christmas, so that was quite nice. Yeah, uh, yeah. What's the Christmas <laughs> bit Yeah, well, it's <laughs> the perfect sort of Christmas bit.
2: <laughs> yeah, so unlike Brewery Yard 1877, and obviously the porter even older, we we don't have we, we never had the opportunity to ask anybody how close we got. We just we at the end of the day we want to make something that we feel is faithful to that history as far as ingredients, process, again, accounting for certain modern things that we can't get around. But uh, this is in this case we've got. Derek here too, uh, yeah. to to is the a, a human link, you know.
1: Yeah, well, and I we've also got Ron's expertise, you know, analysing the brew records yeah. and the brew details. So you know, it it it's been. I think we've all had a big contribution into the beer. I mean, you've had to put it into the other four lads have to put it into practice.
0: Uh, you know,
1: nonsense <laughs> ideas. But, uh, yeah. you know, the experience being able to analyze the books, talk about the, the ingredients, talk about the methods and things. But the little bit of knowledge I had from, you know, operating on a, an old brewery before we closed it in the early 70s, unfortunately, and all moved to a nice new shiny, all, all singing, all dancing, multi-batch German brew house. <laughs> operating 24-5 and a uh, you know, big difference to what I, the romance of operating in a big old Victorian, uh, a little bit rundown, but a big old Victorian brew house with all sorts of character, Right. All
0: sorts. Ron, um, you work with old records all the time, old log books all the time, and they don't, But the, th- the thing about those is they don't contain all the information. When you work on a recipe like this and you actually have a brewer who made the beer, Does it fill in some of the gaps that the historical research can't reveal?
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, especially the stuff about the blending, which obviously doesn't appear in the brewing record at all. So, I mean, I I knew that there was a, a, a stock and a runner. I didn't know how they were blended together. I just knew that they were blended. And Derek was able to say, well, it was about a third old beer, which is normally what the percentage was in most cases. that that would be what I would have guessed if I'd been going to guess. Um, Because I've I've seen plenty of of, of references in the 19th century literature where they say about one third to two thirds old old and new. Uh, But I'm pretty sure that that was never fixed and that they would have done it by taste, which is the the way it was done at Truman's. So that you would have some sort of uh, target acidity that you'd be going for and you'd blend the beers accordingly. So if the if the stock beer was more acidic than, than it normally was, then you'd use more of the young beer, um, which makes sense. But no, I mean, normally what I try and do is, if the details aren't in the brewing record, I'll just refer to what brewing manuals, the technical brewing manuals at the time, say what the normal practice was. And so I'll just go along with that. I mean, one of the big problems I have is hopping. That there's The only records that I have that give the proper hopping details are some of the Barclay Perkins ones from the 1920s and 30s and the Heineken Pilot Brewery records. And they're the only ones I've got that give the proper hop additions. Mm. So, I mean, the, the, the Barclay Perkins ones are really complicated because they've got three coppers and they've been putting in three different types of hops into three coppers mm. in various proportions. It's, um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I try and used by experience, and also sometimes it will be from what I've seen in other breweries' records. So you'll find that the London brewers or the Edinburgh brewers tended to operate in a similar way. Um, and so you can extrapolate some things from other breweries as well. But yeah, I mean, there's guesswork. There's, there's no record to include everything you need.
0: One thing that uh, I'm, I'm curious about, I've, having read your blog, for years now, uh, it's not always clear to me how long stock ales were aged before they did this. Did you, is, was that a thing that a brewery had a regular routine or did it based on, was it based on the, the stock ales themselves? Like re, were breweries tasting them and deciding when to do the blends or was it always nine months or how did that work?
3: Um, I'm guessing that they had, I think what they probably had was a minimum length of time and then they'd be tasting it to see when it was in the, in the condition that they expected. And that would probably vary just depending on the different brews, probably even just the weather, and stuff like that, and how it was yeah. stored exactly. Yeah. So that so that would vary um, quite a bit. Um, about the, the ageing, the, the 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 information I've got on ageing mostly comes from the parliamentary inquiry into beer materials in the eighteen nineties, where wow. uh, which has wonderful stuff because they interviewed lots of brewers and they asked one brewer how long were the beers aged? And he said a stock pale ale, minimum 12 months, semi-stock pale ale, three to four months, mild ale, two weeks. And so because this was someone who was working in the field, you can say, well, he's, and he was under oath, but he's probably telling the truth. I think we <laughs> right. probably trust this. Right. Um, and so that that's mainly what I've gone from. And From other sources, what he says seems to be pretty much spot on. So.
1: I think Mike had something in that in his email back to us. I think Mike Spillane had something about the aging, and I I've got a feeling it's a minimum of six months, yeah. but, but more likely it's longer than that. And there would have been an element of commercial need as well. So you know, you produce the barley wine, and it's probably you're only doing it once, maybe twice a year, sort of thing, not very often. So. Right. You know, when the stocks run low, you're going to get some more, so off you go. These things are stuck down in the cellar somewhere. You be know, like, <laughs> bet you put the running brew through, through, you know, once you get the order, and then you go down and see what you've got to put in it. Yeah.
3: Know, almost, so I mean, Guin- some- Guinness had real problems with foreign experts out that they had to predict what demand was going to be two years in advance, and so. Sometimes they'd have the situation where they didn't have enough beer that had been aged. And the other times they'd have a stock that was getting too big and the, and the beer was starting to go too sour. So it was quite a problem for them. Um, and uh, there's, a, there's a great story of one of the Scottish brewers. So there's a, there's a customer who wanted their imperial stout and wouldn't be leaving when they said they hadn't got any, and actually went to the brewery and they explained to him, look, it takes 12 months to make this. We can't just give you some. We haven't got any and we won't have any for at least another year. Um, So I mean, I can understand why producing these aged beers could be a real nightmare. Um, Certainly Guinness seemed to struggle with it. And I mean, they were a large brewery with presumably reasonably um, stable sales.
0: Right.
1: In terms of not staying on, Jeff, which uh, you mentioned earlier, you know, it was uh, all coming to an end and and the brewers all gave it up. And and Ron and I, again, were talking earlier this week about one of the problems for British brewers at the time to produce this style of beer is that we were having to pay the duty on these beers at a very early stage, at the start of fermentation. So that's when the charge for the duty was taken. and And you have to pay it by the end of that month. So if you imagine that you're producing a strong beer, which would incur a, a high-duty tariff, and then you're going to sit on it for nine months, um, you know, in in wood and whatever, and all the manual input that that's going to go in. I mean, economically, these beers were totally unviable, which is probably part of the reason why they, 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 they were taken out. Uh, you can understand the brewery companies saying, well, you know, it's a lovely beer to have, and but, but you know, it's in the great scheme of things it's just a cost and a drain on the company so huh. and, and, and this is all part and parcel I mean, again we were talking about how the different changes in taxation particularly in uk has affected the whole of the industry throughout its time all the way through moving from the more tax to the yeah. duty tax uh, and uh very very similar
0: yeah yeah that totally makes sense uh it, <laughs> really expensive beers. In addition to the the sitting having that beer just sit in your brewery, you know, not making any money for nine months and taking up space and and all of that. So you get there, I can see how that would be really expensive beers, particularly given that the palate was moving away from that kind of beer. So um, that's maybe why they. Yeah,
3: own. I mean, I think that I think the move away from aged beers. I, mean, I think it starts in the eighteen sixties, um, which is when you see the aged porter production fall off a cliff. And obviously, there was, there was a change in people's tastes around then. And you, you see things, so that's when you see things that were like standard strength, which Porter was, stop being aged at all. And so on the Porter and Stout side, it's only the stronger that that's still being aged. But I mean, aging the stronger stouts. I mean, that went on a long time. I mean, you, you still got, you still had uh, Curie Trish Stout being brewed in the early 90s. So, I mean, that was probably one of the last beers that, that was really uh, a stock ale at all. Um, how long was that aged? Oh,
0: well, I think at least 12 months. Hmm. Okay. So let's uh, talk about, be- Can we talk a little bit about the flavor of this beer? Because uh, I think th- it gets to this question that we're talking about. It, you know, when you, when you do an, an aged beer and you use brett, you're gonna get interesting flavors that are unfamiliar to modern palates. Um, I drank the beer last night. It's eleven o'clock where I am in the morning, so I'm not. I, I didn't want to pour out a, <laughs> a barley wine yet, um, but I, you know, I, I, I really enjoyed it. And one thing, I let it get pretty warm over the course of drinking it, and I liked it at room temperature enormously. I like it kept getting better and better. Um, and there was this lovely, kind of um, spicy note that really emerged later on. Uh, you know, it was much more. Um, malty and the, the uh the fruitiness was more present at a colder temperature and the more it warmed the more this kind of rich spiciness came out. So what will you guys talk a little bit about what you how you felt about the final beer. How, what, what are your reflections on how it tasted and how it turned out and talk about that. I'd like to hear your 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 reflections.
3: Um I mean I think it it turned out very drinkable. Um not over the top with the with the funkiness or anything. Just enough to make the beer really interesting. I mean, I, I've only drunk it at room temperature. I never chill beers at home, so <laughs> uh, so I, I drank it at the temperature I think it should be drunk because it would have just been on the sat on the shelf behind the bar, wouldn't it? Pe- people didn't use the chill bottled beers Britain. so it it would have been yeah, yeah, it would have been fairly warm most of the time when people drank it. Uh, no one would have been drinking it ice cold. And, and I don't think you want to have a beer like that ice cold. As you say, you, 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 it really brings out the flavors when you when you drink it warmer. Um, yeah, I mean, I thought it was a pretty nice balanced beer um, and surprisingly drinkable for the strength.
1: I think that's the key thing about the adding the aged beer is that that slight fruity tartness that you'll get as part of the character of the brett along with spices and some other classic bread flavors. Um But what they do, they just provide a bit of a foil to what can be quite a heavy beer when you look at just you know these these stronger beers can be quite heavy with with lots, you know, quite a high mix of long chain sugars, but just a lot of other things in it. So it's quite a heavy beer. And by adding a little bit of fruit sharpness to it, you're just adjusting that down to make it more approachable as a beer, more drinkable as a beer overall. That's the way I see it. Um, I mean, it's uh, going to be drier as well, isn't it? Because It'll of, be a little bit drier because it would have fermented out a bit more. It won't be so heavy for cloying. It sort of takes away that slight cloyingness to me that some of the um, barley wines, straight barley wines, would, would have, or straight strong beers would just naturally have. So for me, that's the, the thing that works for me. Uh, and it's I a mean, well yeah.
2: it's a well-hopped beer too. Yeah. I mean, we talked yeah. about yeah. this it's a bit earlier. Is, just time. looking at some of the numbers, so yeah, uh, 86 percent alcohol, but the the finishing gravity in Plato's about seven and a half. Yeah, so that's mm-hmm. an, analytically not a dry beer, but but analytical. Be used. This ended up being thirty-seven. It oh, it's awesome. got a, a pretty robust bitterness to it, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I think it it works well with this the, the sweetness of the beer too the bitterness and sweetness and as we mentioned the fruitiness and the and all that so it, it all makes it i think you said it very drinkable yeah you know, particularly to uh i'm not super familiar with with english barley wines contemporary um but you know most of and we make barley wines here but they tend to be bourbon barrel aged and 14 percent alcohol we got one coming out Next month, it's 70% alcohol and the, you know, ten and a half Plato finishing gravity and but there but there's a there's an ethanol. Yeah, the yeah. ethanol there adds some yeah. some balance. Yeah, I, well. I, I, I tend to
3: find that beers over about 13 or 14% I don't normally like very much. It's, uh,
2: the alcohol tends to go everything. Yeah, the it, it, those have become quite normal here in the States, at least in our neck of the woods. Is
1: that fermentation alcohol or is that from the addition of going into the golden
2: cask? It's both. It's both. So we'll yeah. go into the cask at probably 12%. And yeah. depending on how wet the barrels are, yeah, you yeah, can pick up 3 to 5% ballroom. in the barrel. Yeah. So, yeah, very, very different beers. but... Yeah. Um, one I dry alcohol, Yeah, alcohol. yeah,
1: yeah. So you'll get that specific
2: alcohol. Um, yeah. So different. Yeah. Again, all I'm trying to say is my my perception of barley wine is is you know everywhere from like Bigfoot is like an American barley wine, of course, which is basically like a super bitter, robust IPA in a lot of ways, to kind of these English ones that are you know this one's got a decent bitterness to it, but uh, and we actually dry hop this. I got a very very delicate dry hop in this. About 0.2 pounds per barrel
1: of EKGs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so yeah. Um, yeah, they,
0: they probably did that. Yeah.
1: The but idea. I'm, of, I'm really out of the beer turned out.
0: The idea of blending old beer and new beer is something Americans, you know, never learned about. Um, it, and and I think uh, young beer and and, and aged beer. You're, you you mentioned Belgium. They do that. Uh, do you think? this is a lesson that americans could pick up i do think you get something really interesting out of the fresh liveliness uh uh you know of, of a fresh beer that you don't get out of old beer and then as you guys mentioned when you have an aged beer it seems to dry it out it adds this balancing acidity um could this be a frontier that american brewers should get into 100 percent i, I-
2: Again, I learned with Open Eye Poundage that that was a, a I think even a far more acidic beer, and, and, and it felt that was like 12 months in the in the vat. Uh, it had a, a lot more edginess to the to the stock beer. Um, blended again in similar ratios. We did um, so bourbon barrel aged beers. Again, you're very familiar with. We did a series a number of years ago, probably five six years ago, called the Cooper Series, uh, as a way to kind of present bourbon barrel aged beers as less kind of robust and high alcohol. So we would, and this is before we did Obadiah poundage. but we would take a bourbon barrel aged porter, let's say at 8%, go, comes out of the cask, uh, four months later at 10%, we'd bre- blend a fresh batch of that same beer and blend them 50-50. We didn't do the two thirds, one third, but we did them 50-50. So you get some of the, the vanillas and the coconuts and the caramels from the barrel, but you, you're not as much ethanol and not as much booziness. And so I've learned this through, through these projects and others that blending aged and fresh beer, whether it's spirit barrels or, again, just Britannomyces, is, I think, something that every brewer who's doing uh, any type of aged beer should experiment with, for sure. I mean, the thing that struck me,
3: and that's why I'm glad that you've got the, both versions of this beer as well, was when the Ovidaya Poundage was launched, we, there was the unblended beers as well were available. And I found that I preferred the blend to either of the individual beers, that it was definitely an improvement on the individual beers, that both, the, both were bringing something to the blend. Mm-hmm. And by themselves, they were more one-dimensional, the two beers. And it, it convinced me why you'd blend old and young, because you were getting, you know, some sort of the freshness of the young beer, as well all the complex flavours from the aged beer. But the aged beer straight was just a bit too much, I thought it it wasn't that drinkable a beer, whereas blended with the young one it was. And on the other hand, the young beer didn't have much depth of flavor, really. So it was a bit unsatisfying by itself. So it was interesting to see the way the two beers really complemented each other.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a an interesting thing. I hope we I hope we do see more of that. I, I know American uh ingenuity related to the uh, to, to aging has really gotten impressive in the last in the twenty years since people started putting stuff in barrels, and um, you know so much of it is a rediscovery. It's not it's not really innovation.
3: Well, yeah, I mean I, 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 I think at the time uh, most Americans probably didn't realize that you'd had all these barrel aged beers in the UK, because that was the really typical way you'd age age a stock ale. They wouldn't be, mostly they wouldn't be aged in butts. They'd be aged in trade casks or or hogsheads, uh, so relatively small volumes. And, um, yeah, it's something that was done in the, in Britain for centuries. Right. Um, Without the intent of picking up oak. So No, they, they, they didn't want oak like yeah. um, that. That's the great thing from the Whitbread Gravity book from the 20s when they're describing the flavor of the beers they're t- tasting. Um, sometimes it just says American oak, and that means that's the fault. That's yeah. what they're saying, <laughs> because
2: they can taste oak in
1: the beer. So right. what
3: we,
2: to give you a little bit of backstory on the barrels, um, okay. we had done a project, you know, Adnams, I'm sure, mm-hmm. um, yeah. in England, they, uh, they produce their own whiskeys, their own single malt. Yep. So we did a project with them, collaboration a couple years ago, where we brought in their, their malt whiskey casks, and they're basically built like a wine barrel. They're toasted, not charred like a, American bourbon, uh, but um, so we aged a stout in their whiskey casks and released that. 100% aged is a spirit barrel aged beer. Well, we wanted a barrel for for this beer and I knew we wanted something neutral. So we rinsed and steamed. So after using it for a beer, um, one time we rinsed and steamed these barrels heavily to b- get every drop of spirit and beer and everything and even residual oak, I hope, out of the beer. Um, so our, our goal with that was to neutralize the oak and, and certainly anything that had been in, in it prior as much as possible. So I hope that yeah. you know, is the case. Because because they're always very clear about this British brew. They did not want any oak flavor in that beer at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I
1: mean, yeah.
2: No, I don't get oak either. Do you pick up anything oak-wise? No? Okay. So we did our job, there.
0: Yeah, good job. Derek, you have uh, brewed for 54 years, and you know when you started – in the United States, we were de- a declining brewing country. Um, I think perhaps more quickly than other countries. I'm curious, and now you know everything has changed, and and the the whole world now has uh, small breweries that are trying interesting stuff, and we're starting to see regional development of of styles in the way that you know in the 19th century was much more common in, in countries. Could you reflect on your having watched beer over those 54 years? What, 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 uh, what has it been like to witness this, you know, massive change from the period when all the breweries were closing when you started to now?
1: Well, I think I mean, similar, really. I mean, it's been stark. I mean, for the first 30 years of my life in the brewing industry, really, it was going through a series of declines and closures of regional breweries, even national breweries. Uh, and finally, to the point when um, such that you've got the big British brewers, names like we've mentioned, Bass is probably our single largest well-known international brand, Whitbread, um, Courage, um, Watneys, Younger. all youngers, all giving up brewing. You know, when the beer orders come out, the giving up brewing, becoming Pubco's, that's where the money was, and the breweries all effectively becoming owned by multinational brewers from outside the country. Um, so, I mean, they were, if you look at it, with hindsight, there's <laughs> depressing times, really. I mean, there were advantages in brewing. If you're a brewer, then obviously you've got modern brewing, modern techniques, different materials, etc. cetera, uh, more packaging. So there's always things to keep busy with, but in terms of the romance. So from my own personal experience, I I was fortunate enough, uh, after 20 years at Truman's, to, to uh, take a position at Young's Brewery, which... Really, it was in terms of brewing technology, like going back 25 years for me to when I first started. Because you know, I go back to this old brewery with top fermentation, uh, mash tons, uh, open fermentation, having to be there to make sure the yeast comes off at the right time, all the bakeries, and and uh, you know, it wasn't all brewery, the problems of all breweries, hygiene, etc. But really, the romance was there. I mean, Young's, uh, Jeff, I don't think you ever came. We we, we had the visit at Bullers, which was great. Um, But at Young's, we still had 20 heavy horses when I joined them, delivering beer every day. I mean, it was an extraordinary place, all down to the horsemaness of one man, really, John Young. So, and I was very sad when they announced the closure of Young's. You know, that was, for me, was a really sad day, and, and, and that at that point, I think we had five breweries left in London, but almost since that point, uh, you know, I then went to Fullers, and I had a, a, a really good time at Fullers, I, I liked it, it was a strange move when I first went there, but, you know, it had all the things that I'd enjoyed about being at Young's, um, slightly more, you know, up-to-date in the brewery, slightly more... You know, better controls and better hygiene and things. So there still some some things that for me to get my teeth into, but you know, a lot of the work has been done. But great people. But um, I, I think from that point when Young's closed, almost following on from what was happening over here, you have know, you, got people like Goose Island that started Sierra Nevada, uh, Red Hook, etc. All, all these first breweries that are all started that revolution if you like came back across you know having had people like john all being inspired by and people like yourself being inspired by youngs and fullers and taking that over to the states, developing it in a way and and the modern craft brewing scene if you like that you now have and all of a sudden that's sort of transported back again these things go back across and, and hopefully they benefit so we then went from five breweries in london to 125 breweries in London over the next 10 15 years, and that was extraordinary and very, very rewarding to see. And you know, there's such passion. Now, some of them were started by enthusiasts, home brewers, a bit like you had here from those early days, keen home brewers who really know their onions you know, they know their stuff, really dig deep into it to people just wanting because it's a nice idea. Um, but so one thing that they had in common was a passion—a passion to do something different, to be original. So we've had an explosion of breweries in ageing beers, in sour beers, and I mean that. Sort of, uh, you may know that I sort of now have a hand in a small craft brewery, Wimbledon Brewery. Yeah. Uh, so I mean that's a little bit more straight, probably <laughs> reflecting. My age, I don't know, really, but the young boys are in charge now, so I don't have to worry. And they're they're doing all sorts of weird and wonderful things. But, you know, for me, it's been... If you'd have asked me 25 years ago, should you consider a brewing career for anybody's, uh, you know, son, daughter, or or whatever? I'd have said no, forget it. It's going nowhere. It's almost depressing to work in these beer factories, almost. The romance of brewing has gone it's a nice name but the, the actuality is that you're a production line manager in some of the these the, the breweries you're not brewing you're not using any of your knowledge you're just following the formula uh, working back at young's sort of inspired me that time and i think that this craft revolution that we've had kicking off here being followed on uh, back in the uk has just been marvelous and yeah i think there are opportunities there will be ups and downs there'll be closures Um, But I think it's a much more exciting time for somebody coming into the industry. And you've got people, you know, all these, uh, you know, well educated people, putting everything together and, uh, you know, really trying, enthusiastic, with a passion still. And that went out of the industry at one point for me.
3: Uh, I mean, if I look back to when when I started drinking in the 1970s, you've really got the industry dominated by the big six. So yeah. the six large brewing companies basically had 80% of the food trade stitched up between them. And it looked like that was what the future was going to be. And none of those companies exist anymore. They've all disappeared. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the landscape was completely different from what it was 30 or 40 years ago. And I wouldn't have predicted that at the time. And looking back on it, it's not the whole big six era was only like 20 years.
1: Yeah.
3: And yeah. it looked like such a permanent thing at the time. And it looked like they were just going to carry on buying up smaller breweries until there'd be virtually no independent breweries left. And that wasn't the case. Um, I mean, you were saying about the craft beer thing starting in the States and coming over to the UK. It's not totally true. The, the, the first new breweries appeared in the 1970s in the UK. And so you you got people like Penrose Courts, which was yeah. about seventy-eight. they started.
1: yeah.
3: Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and a few. And, 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 it, and the Birkin chain. Yeah, and the Birkin chain, yeah. yeah. So, so you'd, it was starting to build up in the 70s. So you'd already got a thing where people were starting new breweries. And, and that was something that, you know, no one had started a new brewing company in, in Britain for 50 years. The last ones had, had been clubs breweries in the, just after World War I. And apart from that, there would been no new brewing companies founded. And then suddenly it, it starts very small. I, it was, I think camera had a lot of influence in this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. was very influential. Because the, the early ones were all hand oh, beer yeah. breweries.
1: And still are outside of London. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah,
3: you yeah. had me, which was quite in the 70s, I think. And so you, they started to sort of shake up the, the, the British brewing industry. and yeah. I mean, some of them ended up being quite large, didn't they? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. That with it, no? but yeah, I mean, of the large breweries and the large brands that there were in the 70s and 80s, Guinness is the only one left.
0: Right, right.
3: <clears throat> so none of the other big brands, I mean, you think Watney's completely disappeared. Whitbread, they still make some beers to, under that name for export. Bass is still sort of knocking around, but very neglected, I have to say. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's one of the things I find sad, that a beer like Draft Bath mm-hmm. um, isn't, isn't just completely lauded and, and, and lots of effort put into it because it was it was a magnificent beer, especially the one through the unions. Does the do Marston's, but it's through the unions, do you know? Uh,
2: no. Okay. Well, I, I was at Marston's uh, three years ago, and I got to see the union system in action. You, you've been there, I take it, Jeff.
0: Uh, I, I, I have I have not toured that brewery, but I've been to Burton and I, uh, I I looked through the window, so I actually saw the system. But I yeah I, I, I didn't tour the brewery.
2: So yeah. I, so Marston's makes cast bass under contract. So AB you know has no interest in making cast beer. Uh, so they want to you know credit to them, they they keep the cask beer alive under contract with Marston's. But from what I, I believe I asked the question, they they don't want the other yeast to get in there. Because it's a different yeast. Bass has its own yeast. It's not the Marston's yeast. Oh, okay. I didn't realize. So they're still using the proper past Yeah, it's actually two strains. <laughs> well that's not the problem. Anyway. But yeah, I you know, uh, I tried I tried for bass and I still have a lot of um I know the historical importance of bass and we, we tried to pull that one off but um you know per, per Mike, you know, his notes that this beer black eagle I think very much in the spirit of Bass number one. Yeah, line.
1: Nice. So, what you unions in, in oh,
2: yeah. a, a, something I found out the other day, I was looking through the few
3: grass records that I have that I got from someone else. And I thought there were none of the strong owls in there because there wasn't number one or number two. And they had ones that were numbered three, four, and five. And I looked at them and I realized they were numbered the other way around. So there wasn't one being the strongest, five was the strongest. Hmm. And so I think I might actually have some recipes for strong fast
2: meals, nails. All right. It's just because I haven't looked at the record, we'll talk more about that. But well, that, anyway, that was, I think the pivot
0: Yeah, I was gonna ask, ended up you guys
2: have another word It ended up being much better because we this is an opportunity for um for Derek to help tell his stories and you know ended up being a much more of a
0: personal uh beer, you know, and I'd I'd love to be a part of it for sure. And and you guys are you having another? Is there another? Are you looking forward to another beer? Is this an ongoing? Yeah, I was just thinking
2: about this today. I was <laughs> <laughs> thinking, well, we've got this one out of the yeah. way. Yeah, yeah, we we um, we got a release party tomorrow, so I like to kind of officially, you know, let this one out into the world as of tomorrow. And um, but yeah, I mean, we got you guys for a couple more days, so we're going to do it a little two girl uh, batch of a, what, what is it, the recipe that we're doing? Uh, it's a London keeper. Okay. Yeah, okay. Keeper. We're doing a London keeper um 19, 19- 1920. Yeah, I think it might be. In our pilot brewery yeah. on Wednesday yeah, okay. do a, for the tap room. Um, yeah. But one of the guys, so there's invert sugar syrups in here, and one of the guys that Ron connected me to, uh, Matt Becker, is in Michigan. He's making British-style invert sugar syrups. One, two, three, and four. Uh, we use the three and the one in this beer, and then we use. He's going to he's coming to the event. We're yeah. going to see him actually later today, uh, Matt, and he's going to bring some invert two for the, the the brew on Wednesday. So I'll be interested to, to to see what you think
3: when you try the invert. God, I wouldn't be able to
1: judge what was like. I mean, it's, yeah. Uh, so it's, oh it's just goodness interesting goodness. that a guy in Michigan yeah, is making.
2: Yeah. Yeah, potentially even truer inverts than
1: yeah.
2: historically than what's being
1: That's made in England. Yeah, yeah. 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 But,
2: but
3: he's making it the old way because I didn't realize they changed it. That they that it's mostly done just with uh, by adding various amounts of molasses, isn't it? Is the modern method. Uh, yeah. Why well, you have yeah.
1: to invert the sugar first?
3: Yeah, um, but I mean, you know what I'm talking food about.
1: Food. You're
2: familiar with like the Belgian candy syrups and all that. Some yeah. of those can get quite dark. I think. Yeah. These these aren't just su- liquid sucrose. These are. You know, there's some flavor there, and often and They others. split the
1: sucrose, yeah, yeah, the yeah, milk, yeah. That's yeah. the inversion bar, So you get I, a really readily fermentable part.
0: I have a, I attempted to make invert sugar for a, a beer once, so I, um, I'm, I'm aware of it, and it was not a great success. The, the sugar. <laughs> <was good. laughs> a lot
1: of pretty screwers are using you know ten, fifteen percent. Sugar, certainly when I was in. Yeah, that's in a fairly like typical, sensitive beer, sugar, depending on the type of beer. Yeah. Uh, it, was, it was fairly normal.
3: Yeah, but I mean, the thing that surprised me when, the, in fact, it was at Fuller's when we were doing the beer there, and you've got the number two and the number three, and I was amazed when I t- tasted them, and I realised that the flavour of Dark Miles that I'd drunk when I was younger was almost totally derived from number three invert. (laughs) And uh, it Mm -hmm. it didn't come from dark malts like I thought. The the only sort of what I thought were dark malt flavours were actually invert sugar flavours. Because number three especially has lots of dark fruit flavours like sort of plum and things like that. It's a wonderful rich flavour. And yeah, I think it's one of the things that people didn't understand about brewing and I didn't, that the use of sugar was nothing to do with with making the beers more cheaply. It was partly to make improve fermentability, but also for flavour, um, because you're getting all these specific flavours that you're not going to get from malt. Um, and British brewers were very adept at using various types of sugar for different purposes. Um, I'm, I'm only just starting to get my head around sugar. It's a very, very complex subject that's
2: almost totally overlooked. Obviously, my my I had a very similar experience. Harvey's. You'd be familiar with Jeff, yeah. uh, of course. These guys are Harveys. I always make a point to go to Royal, the Royal Oak, and yeah. Suffolk. But the first time I ever had their uh, mild, three percent dark mild, why does I, I haven't even had a sip yet? I go, why does this beer remind me of Saint Bernardus F12, <laughs> <laughs> which is ten and a half percent alcohol? But it was those fruit, those fruit flavors. Yeah. Of course, Harveys uses his beer, and, <laughs> and yeah. I was like. It, was in, it, it had those rich fruit notes that you get,
1: yeah. to a certain
2: degree, with, with, with uh, various derivatives. Yeah, yeah, with a totally
1: yeah. different type but of... Bakery thing. and a carrot. Yeah. The adjuncts are fine, provided they bring something to the table. Yeah.
3: yeah. Right. But I'm sure there isn't a adjunct. Sugar a malt substitute. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I
1: get very I get very upset when people call things adjuncts that aren't adjuncts. Right.
0: Adjuncts
3: of unmalted grains.
0: Now, now we're getting into the uh pedantic grammar uh portion of the discussion. Oh, oh yeah, I it's one of the things <laughs> I enjoy the most. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I sound correct. <laughs> it's especially <laughs>
1: televisible. It's, <a> <laughs> it's
3: especially fun as American homebrewers.
0: Right. Right. Yeah, they're very nerdy.
3: Oh, viewing on the internet is such great sport.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Well, guys, this has been really fantastic. Um, I wish I could be there for your your big event tonight. That would be a lot of fun. But um, I will. Uh, I'll toast you in, in absence.
2: You're off to some somewhere you told me. Where are you off to? Europe?
0: Uh, yeah, I'm going to Norway tomorrow. Uh, there's a the the uh, farmhouse fest. In Hornendal. Oh, this, this oh I'm jealous. Yeah, yeah. So that'll be awesome. I'm, I'm looking cool forward. to yeast and things
2: <laughs>
0: Were you invited yeah. to judge? Uh, no, I'm. They invited me to speak at it, so that's what I'm doing there. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I was. Right. I was in. I was in Voss in May, and I brewed with one of the farmhouse brewers in his eldhus in his firehouse, and um, this is a totally different vein of brewing, but I would highly recommend um, that experience, if ever you have a chance sitting around a, an open fire with a 200 liter cauldron of, uh, well, it starts out as water infused with juniper and then you, then you mash in and then you, you know, then you, then it's beer or then it's wort, and you boil it down for, we did a short boil, only four hours. Uh, the whole process, <laughs> <laughs> the whole process is a 12 hour day and, uh, it's quite an experience. So I highly recommend that if you can do that. That sounds
1: great excellent I, I've, I've
3: brewed over an open fire once, which was at Williamsburg brewing a porter just in this big copper pot that that was fun well, apart yeah. from the stirring of it, that wasn't any fun but <laughs> it, it, it was an interesting experience because it, it's a completely different way of brewing, and obviously this is the way people brew for hundreds of years
0: right yeah and it's, it's amazing too in the, um, in the at least in Voss, uh the one of the flavor components is this phenolic note and I I really assumed that you know when I first tasted it was Does this come from the yeast because I you know read my Lars Garschel a lot and he says there's no phenolics in this yeast strain and it's not it's because as it boils it sort of curls the smoke from the fire into the into the uh the beer and you really? get little
1: bit the little note. oh it's a yeah so,
0: <laughs> It's one of those things that you don't realize until you're sitting there in the brewery. You, you know, <laughs> to, like, awesome.
1: I'll enjoy. It. That sounds like a great trip. I'm, never yeah, yeah, that. I'm looking yeah. forward to it.
0: So we're going to do, they're going to do a demonstration of raw beer, which we, which is different, so that's unboiled. So that'll be fun. Hmm. Yeah. All right, guys. Thanks so much. Uh, best of luck. And um, I would love to see all three of you in at some point in in some context, so in the per in person that would be great.
3: Yeah, well, I was in Portland earlier this year. I know, and
0: I missed you somehow. Uh, I read about it on the blog afterwards, and it was too late for me to. Um, you're already gone, so. Oh well. Next, next time you come, uh, you know, DM me on Twitter, and we'll have a pint.
1: Okay, I will it
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and. Yeah, Michael and Derek. Obviously, if you're in Portland, please let me know. i will love to take you yeah. out. And if I'm in in Chicago or Europe, I'll I'll uh, look for you guys too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Always
1: awesome uh, All right. Thanks, Jeff. Jeff, pleasure to meet with
0: you again. Yes, it was fantastic to thanks. see you again too. Uh, I'm glad you did yeah. this so I could have this conversation. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Projects like this—they uh, just marvelous
1: to be involved in. So okay. a real honor to be here.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. I think it, I think they feel the same way. I'll do
1: that. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it that with me.
2: Yeah. And it's something we can drink for many years, too. That's the other, you know, the, the the parting gift is, you know, we can, you know, like I said, hold on to some bottles, uh, see how it ages for a few years. And I know for me, I think, particularly around that kind of Christmas period or whatnot, yeah. you know, every year I'll hold off to some bottles just to see how it, yeah,
1: that's, how that's it ages, you
2: know. Yeah. We, we officially, I think, put a Best Buy 2027, 2027. So give it a five-year shelf life, but I think it, it's got legs beyond that.
0: Yeah, I
1: well, we hope so,
0: yeah. Seems safe, though, five years. Right. That's it. All right, guys. Thanks.
1: Take care. Okay. Bye. 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 Tunes, Tunes.
0: Thanks so much.